My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I'm, I'm glad you're here today because uh, we're in one of the most beautiful and uh, strange chapters in all the Bible this morning. We are studying the book of Joshua together, and we are in Joshua chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, you can go there. And I'll just jump right into it because one of the things that when you read Joshua chapter 2, you might come away and say, you know, it's almost a chapter that's unnecessary in this story that's being told by Joshua. It's the story of the Israelites, uh, the second generation, the generation that grew up in the wilderness. And they're about to go into this promised land, this land that God's been promising to uh, his people since Abraham almost 500 years before this. They've been delivered out of Egypt. They've wandered in the wilderness 40 years. and Now they're ready to go into the promised land. And when you're at the end of chapter 1, you, you see they've come right up to the border. They're right up there to the Jordan. They're, they're ready to go and, and cross over into this land that God's given them. And all of a sudden, what Joshua does is he tells this story in between chapter 1 and chapter 3 when they go across the Jordan. And if you just went from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 3, you wouldn't know that anything was missing. Except Joshua does want us to know about a key figure, although we don't know how key she is. We won't know for, for centuries later. This uh, story is about spies. And it is about um, those that are uh, being uh, sent across the Jordan. And they're being sent across because uh, they need to see the land and, and what's happening in the land. I'm sorry, I'm having a problem. Here we go. All right. Look at, look at verse 1 with me. It says, And Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shedem as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Well, I just want to stop right there, and I want to show you two things. I want to show you, one, the setting and the, the scene. The setting is this, is that they've come into this place, that they're, they're camped out on the um, east side of the Jordan, and they're in a place called Shedem. And, and if you went uh, from the, where they camped, it means Achaia woods, and so it means a, probably camped under the trees just at the edge of the plain before you get to the mountains. And it's about five miles from where they're camped. They could walk straight five miles, and they would run right into the Jordan River. And then on the other side of the Jordan River, about five miles, seven miles, is a city called Jericho. And so on a clear day, you could, you could be sitting in Shittim, and you could look across the plain, and you would be able to see Jericho in the distance. It's not the first time that the Israelites 
have been here. They were there before. If you went all the way back to Numbers, beginning in chapter 22, and you see chapter 22 and 23 and 24 and 25, and you see that there's a king named Balak, and he's the king of Moab. He's there in in this area, and he contacts a prophet named Balaam. And he wants Balaam to curse the Israelites to try to prevent them from uh, entering into Canaan. And so uh, God intervenes, forbids Balaam from cursing Israel. And then on his way to the princes of Moab, the angel of the Lord shows up. You remember the story. And the donkey, he's the only one that has the eyes to see. This is Balaam's donkey. And the donkey begins to talk. And Balaam carries on a conversation, kind of strange. All this happens in this area. What also happens is right after this, the Israelites will fall into idol worship, making sacrifices to the Moabite gods. But this, this is a a different generation. This is the next generation. This generation's under Joshua's leadership, and and they've got their eyes across the Jordan, and they're looking at Jericho, and so now we're given the scene, and we read that these spies, Joshua sends two spies over, and they're to scout out the land. And when they get across the Jordan, and they make the walk, and they get to Jericho, they go to Rahab's house. And then what the text tells us is that she's a prostitute. And it surprises us as readers. Listen, at the same time, it would have been a logical place to go, I guess. I mean, you want to know what's going on in the world of Jericho. Rahab's house would have been the place for information, maybe like a barber shop. Maybe. See, there's a tension right here at the beginning. There's supposed to be a tension. In fact, the Hebrew writer, very likely Joshua's, the language that he's using here is, 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 is provocative. It, it's veiled, it's subtled, uh, but, but provocative nonetheless. Language like the men entering the house and uh, the men laying down. As the reader, we're thinking, surely... This is about to come off the rails. Look at verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here uh, tonight to search out the land. So first thing you know, these guys aren't very good spies, all right? Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house. For they've come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Well, here's what we discover. King's on the alert. He hears about the Jews, and he knows about this visit to the Jews. And so in verse 3, summons Rahab, wants to know where the men are. Rahab, uh, he wants Rahab to hand him over. Verses 4 and 5, she hides the spies and informs the king, yeah, they were here. But she doesn't know who they were, and more than that, they left. 
In other words, here's the thing. Rahab lies. And it's a big lie. In fact, what she does is not simply protect these two men, the, the two spies. She puts herself in grave danger. She puts her family in grave danger. If she's caught, she would have been executed right along with her family. She takes this huge risk. But why? I mean, she doesn't even know them. And, you know, we'll find out in just a moment. But, but I want to point out, this is the question uh, that the writer wants us to ask. And, and the, the question is, why does she do it? Now, let me say this. The writer is not concerned with the ethical dilemma of her lie. So you can read this chapter. And you can become so hung up on the fact that Rahab lied. And did she do the right thing? Did she do the wrong thing? How can some, you know, let me quote a guy, Dale Ralph Davis, who writes this in his commentary. Maybe this will be helpful for you if you struggle with that. He says, this, incidentally, tells us what the writer is not concerned about. He's not very interested in picky ethical questions based on verses 4 through 6. Endless wranglings and discussions about whether it was right for Rahab to lie to the Jericho police and so on. It's tragic when people snag their pants on the nail of Rahab's lie, quibble endlessly about the matter, and never get around to hearing Rahab's truth, which the writer has conspired to make the center of the whole narrative. Then he gives this example, you ready? That's like a wife who proudly opens the refrigerator door to show her husband the scrumptious salad and dessert that she's prepared for their dinner guests. But her husband, scarcely glancing at those delicacies, instead rubs his finger across the top of the fridge and goes off muttering, there seems to be a good bit of dust on top of the refrigerator. He missed the whole point. He didn't understand his wife's intention at all. His focus was all wrong. Naturally, he says... The New Testament doesn't fall into this trap. It consistently stresses the faith of Rahab. We'll see that in a moment. Let's keep going. Look at verses 6 and 7. But she brought them up to the roof. And she hid them with the stalks of flax that she'd laid in order, um, in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the forts. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. She hides the men on the roof under the stalks of flax. It's precarious at best. I mean, we're meant to think, well, they got out of this by the skin of their teeth. But behind the scenes, the, the, all these events are owing to the guiding hand of God. The, the men don't search the house. They don't look in the, under the stalks of flax where they're hiding. God's directing these men safely. And God's been preparing Rahab. See, God was not only working with the Israelites the past 40 years, you know, preparing them to trust him, to, to, pre to prepare them for what he had promised, to, to prepare them to believe in God. He was also preparing Rahab. We know this because of what she says next. Look at her confession. 
beginning in verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord, that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the, of the Red Sea before you when, you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he's God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you'll save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. It's a remarkable confession. And I don't want to pass over it too quickly. You know, the, the words are, are familiar maybe. Maybe they're too familiar. That They're choruses that we sing on Sunday morning without much thought. But listen, I want you to hear, Rahab didn't grow up in church. She grew up in the middle of godlessness. I mean, her parents didn't take her to Sunday school. She never went to camp. She didn't have a Bible or a quiet time or a journal. I mean, and none of, none of her Facebook friends were Christians. Her knowledge of God came from pagan news. It didn't come from a preacher. It didn't come from an evangelist. The newspaper, the evening news, She'd heard about these Jews who were wandering in the wilderness, the ones who came out of Egypt, and their God had parted the sea. That's what she'd been told. They went up against some of the kings of the Amorites, and because of their God, they defeated them. And the people of Jericho, they were afraid of the Israelites. Listen, they, they had a, a city that was fortified by walls. That they weren't afraid of people. But this was different. You being attacked from, from the east, from, from the direction of the Jordan, that never concerned them. That the time that the kings went to war always coincided with the time that the Jordan River was full, it, it was impassable. But if a people who had a God who parted waters, then that changed everything. Notice the contrast real quick. So 40 years ago from the telling of the story, the, the people of Israel, they'd spied out the land and they came back and they were terrified. The people of Israel, they, they were afraid of the people of the land of Canaan and their fear kept them from going into the land. It paralyzed their faith. It kept them from following God into the blessing and the promise that he had for them. Now, 40 years later, it's the Canaanites who were afraid. 
their hearts were melting. All except for one, Rahab. Her response is not fear, it's faith. I mean, she believed. She, 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 she wasn't terrified. I mean, she feared God, but she wasn't afraid. What she's demonstrating is faith. So much faith that she risked everything. Give Rahab's confession, this confession about God. It's the confession that Israel should have had 40 years before this. This pagan, idolatrous prostitute that lived in the midst of a godless place, maybe the most godless place on earth at the time. She believed. She heard, and she believed. Well, what did she believe? Look at verse 9 again. She believed in God's sovereignty, the Lord. In fact, she even calls him Yahweh. She knows his name. And she says, this Yahweh, this God, he's given you the land. If God gives it, it must be his. It's not ours. It belongs to him. And he's given it to his people, and you're his people. She believes in the sovereignty of God. Notice in verse 10, she also believes in God's power. The sea parted. The kings were defeated. God has power over nature, over politics, over armies, over history. Nothing in her life compared to the power of this God. Surely she knew the gods of Canaan. She probably worshipped the gods of Canaan. She may have even been a a prostitute that facilitated the worship. Maybe she had an idol. Maybe there was a little trinket in her house. She may have even received some kind of comfort in her worship. But nothing she'd ever known in her life, ever, compared with the power of Israel's God. She'd risk everything behind to worship him. What we find here, listen, what we find here is hope. The hope of her salvation, the hope for her life was not in the gods that she had known. Not in the armies of Jericho, not in the history of Jericho or the land of Canaan, not in nationalism or politics or herself or anything else. Her hope for salvation was in the God of Israel. Well, God's sovereignty and God's power. Look at verse 11, God's supremacy. She says, for the Lord your God, he's God in the heavens above and the earth below. He's the Lord everywhere. He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of everything. His supremacy extends everywhere. There's there's no one beside him. He has no equal. He's supreme. In verse 12, she appeals to God's word. Give me your word, the word you swear by the Lord. She knew that God's wrath was coming to Jericho. She knew her only hope of salvation was God. That God would have to save her by his hand through his people. Rahab's confession is desperate. It is full of dependence. It's a 
hope against hope that God would be gracious to save her despite who she was. A Canaanite, a woman, a, a, a prostitute, a, a part of, of godless people who were destined for the destruction of God's wrath. She believed, she hoped, not that God would overlook who she was. She wasn't looking at herself. She believed, she hoped that God would save her because of who he was. And her faith in God, she risked everything. Well, I also don't want you to miss verses 12 and 13, God's mercy and grace. She feared God. She wasn't afraid, but she feared Him, and she trusted Him, and she believed His mercy and grace could extend even to her. Not because of who she is, but despite who she is. She, she believed God saw her not only as who she was, but who she could be. This pagan prostitute believed she could worship the one true God. She could become his. That he would accept her. Her, her entire life was transactional. Love was a transaction. Acceptance was a transaction. Security was a transaction. That, that's all she'd ever known, and her gods were the same way. She had nothing to give. She couldn't buy her deliverance. She couldn't buy her salvation. She trusts God for it. See, I think maybe that Israel sent the spies into Jericho because they were still a little bit afraid. I mean, they were still unsure. Yet, yes, we believe, we believe God, but we, we want to be sure. I mean, it would make us feel a little better if we could just go scout out the place, find some weakness, lay our eyes on a little hope, you know? We'd feel better. I, mean, I believe the Israelites had faith in God. That's why they were there. But they didn't really feel it, maybe. Maybe they just wanted to, to see it a little bit. And so these two spies in their quest to find hope and their strengths, some hope that they could actually pull this thing off, that, that conquering this land it was a doable thing. They wanted to walk by sight. They, they wanted to see for themselves that they had a chance. Here's what they find. They find a woman of faith. A desperate woman who walked by faith in their God, not by sight. A woman who walked by faith in their God. A woman, a prostitute, someone unclean, unworthy, a woman that they would have shunned. You know what's interesting? The only character named in this whole story not the spies, it's not the king, it's Rahab. And they find in her a faith willing to risk everything on the hope that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. Verse 14, and the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we'll deal kindly and faithfully with you. They're inspired, I think. They pledge their lives to her. Our life for your life, even to death. You know, the statement's powerful. It, it, 
causes us to, to pause for a moment. It's what Jesus says to you, by the way. My life for yours in death. My death for you. Well, I want you to see how the story ends. It's, it's a little bit comical. In verse 15, then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills where the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go on your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we Come into this land. You shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and mother and brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and will be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who's with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours then we'll be guiltless with respect to you, to your oath, that you've made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. Then they, she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. We'll pick her story up at the end of chapter 6, and I don't want to spoil it, but this is how they reported when the spies got back. When they departed and went into the hills and remained three days until the pursuers returned, and the uh, Pursuers searched all along the way, and they found nothing. When the two men returned, they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all this land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of this. She lets them out the window. They hide for three days. They go over the terms of, uh, of what's supposed to happen in the evasion. Stay in your room. Get to your family. Don't rat us out. All of that stuff. And they agree, and they make their promises. And now Rahab, she's going to wait. She's going to have to wait, actually, for several chapters. And she'll watch the Israelites come. She'll observe them marching around the city and blowing the horns. And she'll wait. But her rescue is sure. There's a security in the grace that she's believed. From the earliest believers, they've seen the scarlet cord as a, as a sign, a symbol of a foreshadowing. Oh, it's one that looks back for sure. They would see it, and it, it's something that looks back to the Passover when when Israel is saved in the night that God had told him in Egypt he was going to take the firstborns and to put the blood on the doorpost, and there was salvation that came with that, the Passover. But the earliest believers began to look and see not only does it look back at the Passover, it looks forward. It looks forward, this scarlet uh, uh, cord. It, it, it looks forward to to this time of believing and hoping on God and having redemption, having salvation from God. 
through the bloody death of his son. You know, there's this other bit I want us to notice. At the very end there in 24, and Joshua said, Truly the Lord's given us all this land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This melt away because of us. The, the explicit reference is, is to the fear the, the people had because the Israelites, they were the people of God. In fact, that's what, if you went back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, uh, verse 25, God says, I, I'll begin to put dread and fear of you and the peoples who are under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. That's the explicit meaning for sure. But I think there's an implied meaning as well. I think there's a subtle meaning, a double meaning, one that's under the surface, and I think it's a reference to the faith of Rahab. It's her heart that melts. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 97, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Or Amos 9, the Lord, of, the Lord God of hosts, he touches the earth and it melts. And God melted her heart with grace, redeeming, mysterious, assuring, surprising grace. But God didn't only save Rahab and, and then use Rahab to save Israel. God used Rahab to make it possible to save you. See, after Jericho falls, Rahab is going to be brought into God's covenant people. She's going to become one of them. And then soon she's going to meet a man named Salmon, and they're going to get married, and they have a son, and that son's going to be named Boaz. Boaz is going to have a son named Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse will have a son named David. And then 24 generations later, Jesus is born from the line of David, and it goes all the way back to Rahab. In fact, one of the most scandalous things when you open Matthew's gospel, Matthew begins with a genealogy, and listed in it are four women Gentile women, pagan women, scandalous women, who all are part of the lineage of Jesus. Here's what's so amazing. Rahab's declaration of faith is truly an act of God's surprising grace. Rahab's an outsider, a stranger to, to God's covenants and into his law, and she doesn't have the advantages of growing up and hearing about God's Ways, she'd been brought up in all the immorality and all the evil and all the customs of her day as a Canaanite. She was a sinful Gentile outside the covenant mercies of Israel woman. She didn't deserve to be saved. But God had mercy on her. If ever a sinner experienced surprising grace... 
It was Rahab. But let me remind you, we're not very different from her. I mean, just like Rahab. We're originally not part of God's family. We're part of a corrupt and sinful world. That's how we were born. And just like Rahab, we've heard of God's mighty deeds, and in Rahab then experiences God's surprising grace and, and, and seeks to find refuge in Him. And let me just say, we can experience that same grace today. When you read about Rahab's story, you, you can't help but see the truth that God sees not just who we are, but who he's making us to be. I'll tell you one other surprising thing about Rahab. There are many labels that we could give people in the Bible. You could call Abraham, uh, Abraham the selfish liar. You know, the, the one who traded his wife to save his own life. You could say that about Abraham. Jacob. You could say, Jacob, the, the deceiver. Gideon. Gideon, the, the coward, the one who went and hid in the cliffs. David, you know what you could say about David? Every time you mention David, David, you know, the adulterer and murderer. Here's the thing. You never see them referred to with those labels. But Rahab is different. She shows up three times in the New Testament. And two of those, she's Rahab the harlot. Listen to James chapter 2. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them away? Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. You always see her referred to as Rahab, the harlot. Rahab, the prostitute. But here's the thing. Because of her simple faith, it's no longer a label of shame. It's a billboard of surprising grace. There's a lot of parallels that could be drawn from the book of Joshua to the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians in the New Testament. What Paul describes in terms of doctrine in Ephesians, maybe you'd say it this way. What Paul describes by way of doctrine in Ephesians, Joshua describes with story. Listen to how Paul puts this in Ephesians chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now listen to this, so that 
in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, as a believer this morning, if you are, you're a trophy of God's grace. You're, the, you're a billboard of God's grace, and you'll be on display forever. Close this way. That's how Max Lucado describes it. He says, there are many reasons God saves you. To bring glory to himself. To appease his justice. To demonstrate his sovereignty. But one of the sweetest reasons God saved you is because he's fond of you. He likes having you around. He thinks you're the best thing to come down the pike in quite a while. If, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring, sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, and he chose your heart. The Christmas gift he sent you in Bethlehem. Face of friends, Lucado says. He's crazy about you. This morning I want you to know, I, I know, some of you are here this morning. And you walk in and we talked about last week even. It's hard for you to get past the shame of your life. I wonder, does anybody know? Well, let me tell you something. God knows. He knows every bit of it. It's no longer a mark of shame for you if you're a believer. It's a billboard of God's grace. You are the trophy of God's grace. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted God, you, you've never confessed like Rahab confesses. No, no, I, I know. I know that God is sovereign and powerful and supreme and kind and merciful. And to believe that he sent his son, Jesus, to take all that you are, all your sin, all your shame upon himself, and to die the death you deserve, to pay the penalty for your sin so that you, so that you can live, so that you can know the mercy of God, so that you can be overwhelmed and experience His indescribable, unconditional, overwhelming grace. You can do that this morning. God, I trust your son for my salvation. I want to know your grace. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you'd, you'd draw us this morning. You'd, 
you'd remind us of who you are, Father, you remind us of what you've done. We'll walk out of here and into a world that that will expend a lot of energy to remind us of all of our shame. We'll offer us a thousand different ways in which we can cover that up and try to save ourselves. And yet, Father, none of that's the answer. I pray this morning we would run as fast as we can into the arms of your grace. Let them know what it is to be saved by you. So we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.